Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 37. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this episode very early in the morning on September 7th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. We were supposed to have been back in New Orleans this week, but the Crescent City is a little short on the modern conveniences just now, and we don't want to add to the load. Here's to New Orleans, America's most resilient city. Mix yourself a Sazerac tonight in her honor. And if you suffered under Ida up in New York, make it a Manhattan. Either way, raise a glass to tough people. Before we jump in, a brief report on my activities since the last episode. As most of you know, the podcast website has been quite scruffy. I've never suggested that this was a professional operation. I think it's fairly obviously more sincere than slick. But enough is enough. We've rebooted the website, so run over and take a look at www.thehistoryoftheamericans.com. I'd love to hear your comments. You can shoot thoughts to me via the contact page now, and the support menu has lots of interesting possibilities. There's no merch yet if you click that button, but I have a couple of ideas that some of you might find amusing. The new website also supports blog posts, which I will put up from time to time to add supplemental materials, correct mistakes, comment on the passing scene, and so forth. Anyway, I hope you like it and find it useful and maybe even interesting. On September 4th, 1956, Winston Churchill wrote the preface to the second volume of his A History of the English-Speaking Peoples. Churchill's preface is but a short paragraph, and it's worth reproducing here for the wider context it provides to the history of the Americans. Far-reaching events took place... I wish I could do this in Churchill's accent, by the way. Far-reaching events took place in the two centuries covered by this volume. The new world of the American continent was discovered and settled by European adventure. In the realms of speculation and belief, poetry and art, and other new worlds were open to the human spirit. Between 1485 and 1688, the English peoples began to spread out all over the globe. They confronted and defeated the might of Spain. Once the freedom of the seas had been won, the American colonies sprang into being. Lively and assertive communities grew up on the western shores of the Atlantic Ocean, which in the course of time were to become the United States. England and Scotland adopted the Protestant faith. The two kingdoms of the island became united under a Scottish dynasty. The country sustained a Republican experiment under the massive personality of Oliver Cromwell. But at the nation's demand, the royal tradition was revived. At the end of this volume, the Protestant faith has been secured under a Dutch monarch. Parliament is far advanced on the road to supremacy in the affairs of state. America is fast developing, and a prolonged and worldwide struggle with France is close at hand. In case you'd lost the thread, we are spending so much time on Francis Drake because of the central role he played in confronting and defeating the might of Spain— and establishing freedom of the seas, which would, as Churchill wrote, allow the American colonies to spring into being. And, obviously, 
I like Drake a whole lot. This episode is Sir Francis Drake, Around the World in 1018 Days, Part 3. I've been wrestling with how best to get Drake and company back to England quickly because there is a lot of ground to cover over the next few years in the timeline. This is not an entirely straightforward question. On the way home from grabbing Spanish ships off the west coast of South America, Drake traveled far up the Pacific coast of today's United States. There he went ashore for between five and ten weeks, probably somewhere in there, while careening his ships developed a constructive relationship with local Indians, and staked the claim of England to the entire region, declaring it Novo Albion. There is an enormous controversy, however, over where exactly Drake did this. For ages, Californians insisted that it must have been at Drake's Bay at Point Reyes National Seashore north of San Francisco, or even somewhere inside the Golden Gate. Others put Drake's landing along the coasts of Oregon, Washington, or Vancouver, British Columbia. That tangled and conspiracy-ridden story, which is ultimately a great example of historians doing bad things in the service of contemporary politics, is worth its own episode, or a good part of one. So I've decided to bring Drake home quickly, and then spool back to the argument over his journey up the West Coast a few episodes hence, I'll probably do a wrap-up on Drake after St. Augustine, Roanoke, and the Armada. Since I'm following my muse, however, I may switch it up. Even I don't know. That's part of the fun here. At the end of the last episode, Drake had captured the Cacafuego, which carried a massive load of treasure belonging in no small part to Philip II. Not only did she surrender a huge haul of silver... But to Drake, the prize was all the sweeter for hitting Philip where it hurt him. It's March 1579. The Golden Hind is just north of the equator off South America. And it will still be three months before Philip learns from his ambassador in London that Drake is at loose in the Pacific. Spanish officials in the New World, however, were painfully aware of Drake. El Drake now in Spanish reports. He having already captured numerous ships and a staggering amount of treasure. The Spanish were systematic in the gathering of military and political intelligence. Whenever they would get their hands on a person who had spent any time with Drake, as a captive or a victim of privateering or as a collaborator or maybe even a member of his own crew, the Inquisition would interrogate him and take a detailed transcript of the deposition. Some years later, in fact, Francis Drake's cousin John Drake, along on this voyage, would fall into Spanish hands and give detailed testimony of what had happened years before. Many of those deposition transcripts survive, so a great deal of what we know about Drake comes down to us in the form of interrogation records and internal Spanish correspondence. Drake seemed to know this at some level because there is some evidence that he spread disinformation among captives whom he subsequently released. You will recall that Drake had a freed black servant, Diego, who had joined him during the raid on Panama in 1573 and been a member of his household and crew ever since. On at least one occasion that we know of, Diego seems to have planted desinformatia, 
as we used to say during the good old Cold War days, at Drake's behest. In 1579, off the coast of Guatemala, the Golden Hind captured a prize with yet another Portuguese pilot, Juan Pascual. Via Spanish reports, Miranda Kaufman describes the following encounter in her book, Black Tudors. One day, at the prow of the ship, Diego inquired of Pascual secretly, where is the port of Colima? Pascual replied that it was beyond the Mexican region the Spaniards called New Galicia. I think we are going thither, Diego revealed. Withdraw yourself from me. Do not let yourself be seen speaking to me. This exchange was revealed by the royal licentiate of Guatemala, a man named Valverde, in a letter to King Philip II in April 1579. At this stage, the Spaniards were desperate to know the route by which Drake would return to England. In other words, Diego wanted Pascual, who would soon be released, to think the Golden Hind was headed up the coast of Mexico, which it was not going to do, and tell the same to the Spanish authorities. Now back to Kaufman. In his letter to Philip II, Valverde analyzed Drake's four options. He could return the way he came through the Strait of Magellan, but that would mean sailing back down a coastline full of angry Spaniards alert to his presence. He could continue north and try to find the mythical Strait of Anion, a northwest passage some geographers believe separated North America from Asia. But Valverde reasoned this would be impossible, because this is a strait which has never been navigated and is not known to exist. Sailing west through the East Indies was a possibility, but this would be long and troublesome, as he would have to pilot and coast the entire world in order to return to England. The final option was for Drake to cross back to the Atlantic overland via the Isthmus of Panama with the help of the Cimarrones. He could then, suggested another official, build launches and seize trading frigates so as to go with them to England. Valverde believed that the presence of Diego, who must be a chieftain amongst the Negroes of Panama, under whose protection he could carry his booty by land, indicated that Drake had originally intended to take the overland route. But Drake would have learned from his captives that the Cimarrones had recently made peace with the Spanish authorities in Panama and that the area was well guarded. Therefore, Valverde concluded... Drake would return by the Strait of Magellan. Valverde's reasoning was not terrible, but it underestimated Drake, and perhaps more importantly, Drake's good luck. Drake skipped Panama entirely, cutting directly across from the coast of today's Ecuador to Costa Rica, a trip of roughly 600 miles in nine days. The Golden Hind anchored near Cano Island, today a wildlife preserve, and sent the pinnace into a river on the mainland to round up food and secure fresh water. This was presumably at today's Drake's Bay on that coast. The jungle turned out to be full of food, and the English sailors, who had again proved themselves better hunters than most Spanish conquistadors, had their first fresh meat in at least a month, including alligator and monkey. With a huge pile of treasure and 80 men on a small ship in pinnace, Drake needed a second substantial ship. 
He dispatched the pinnace with 30 or so armed men, and on March 20th, they intercepted a 40-ton bark owned by Rodrigo Teo, headed to Panama with a cargo of sarsaparilla, lard, honey, and maize. In a fantastic stroke of luck, Teo's bark carried two pilots who had been sent by the Viceroy of New Spain to take the new governor of the Philippines to Manila. The pilots had the secret Spanish navigational charts and rudders to sail from Central America to the Western Pacific, and now Drake had them. The Western circumnavigation opened up before him. Drake conscripted the more senior of the two pilots, Alonso Sanchez Colchero. Two days up the coast, he released the rest of the prisoners in the pinnace with a supply of food and water. They later reported to Spanish interrogators that Drake had treated them well. On April 4th, Drake captured another ship, the most notable passenger being Don Francisco de Sarate, who afterwards wrote a long letter about the encounter to Spanish authorities. Drake had Zarate to dinner, and the next morning inspected Zarate's ship for loot. Here's Samuel Balfe's account. Zarate told Drake that his clothes were very costly and implored him not to take them from him. When Drake promised he would not, Zarate gave him a gold falcon with a large emerald set in its breast. After going through everything, Drake had his men remove several bales of linen and silks and four chests of china dishes, explaining to Zarate that he was taking the latter for his wife. No treasure in silver and gold, mate. If you go on a two-and-a-half-year business trip, you'd better bring home some nice stuff for your wife. I hope all you husbands know that already. The next day, Drake lined up the captured ship's small crew and gave them each a handful of coins, with more going to the sailors who looked the most in need. He released the pilot called Chero, who he had found more annoying than useful, and took Zarate's pilot in exchange, as was his custom. A young black woman named Maria left Zarate's ship and went with Drake. We do not know how or why this happened, or whether Diego played a role. Whether Maria, in moving from probable slavery under the Spanish to notional freedom under the English, actually improved her circumstances, would become a topic of controversy raging over the centuries. On April 13th, Drake entered the harbor of Gualtalco on the southwestern coast of Mexico. There was a bark loading local products for trade in Panama or Peru, and unsure the Spanish were conducting the trial of three blacks who were charged with attempted arson. The Spaniards fled when they saw Drake's old compadre, Thomas Moon, heading ashore with 25 armed men. Moore's men captured a fleeing merchant and grabbed a large haul of coins and goods from his home. They freed the black men, two of whom volunteered to join Drake's crew. The third ran off to try his luck in the forest and relieved the bark of valuable cargo. The next morning, the Golden Hind and her consort sailed off. When the crew of the bark returned that day, they discovered Drake's Portuguese pilot, Nuno de Silva, whom he had conscripted off Cape Verde the year before, standing forlornly on the bark's deck with his possessions. 
De Silva's journal fell into Spanish hands and would only be discovered in a dusty archive in Mexico City in the early 1900s. More than 300 years later, it would upend history's understanding of Drake and his voyage of 1578 to 79. But we're not going to get to that in this episode. At this point, Drake knew that the Spanish were hunting for him and that neither crossing the Isthmus nor the Strait of Magellan were safe routes home. That left two options. Sailing west around the world, the route he would eventually take, or over the top of North America, the so-called Northwest Passage, if he could find the hypothetical western end of it. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that the English term for the western end of the Northwest Passage, which does not actually exist, was the Strait of Onion, and John Dee and possibly the Queen herself had charged Drake with finding it. In possession of Spanish charts and rudders, Drake now knew that the summer winds blow south by southeast down the west coast of North America. That meant that the Golden Hind and Teo's Bark still along at this point, would beat against those winds if they were to sail directly up the coast from Mexico. That would not only be exhausting and take a lot of time, but it would deplete their ships physically. The two ships already needed careening. That was the arduous process by which a wooden sailing ship was unloaded, beached, scraped of barnacles and other growth in the hull, repaired and caulked with pitch, and a long tack against the winds would put the ships in jeopardy if they could not find a suitable and safe bay to spend the month or more necessary to complete the process. So Drake headed out into the Pacific, proceeding west by northwest more than 2,000 miles until roughly the latitude of Los Angeles, then describing a wide loop to the northeast, arriving somewhere on the Pacific Northwest at perhaps 48 degrees north by late May. 48 degrees north is roughly where the southern tip of Vancouver Island looks across to the northwest corner of Washington State. The Golden Hind and Teo's Bark spent two to three weeks exploring the coast of the Pacific Northwest, looking for the western entrance to the Strait of Onion and a suitable harbor with a beach to careen the ships. They found a, quote, fair and good bay on June 17, 1579, and spent five or more weeks there. The English explored the area and developed apparently good relationships with the local Indians, who had never before encountered Europeans or blacks of African descent. Eventually, Drake would claim the territory for England and Elizabeth, name it Novo Albion, and legitimized the claim through ceremonies with the Indians and the placement of a metal plate engraved at least with Drake's name and the date. The location of the, quote, fair and good bay is of immense controversy and has been for well over a hundred years. For a long time, many historians believed it to be in California, either at Drake's Bay, which is on the Pacific coast north of San Francisco, or somewhere in San Francisco Bay, That view is reinforced in the 1930s by the discovery of a plate that appeared for all the world to be the very plate Drake put up claiming Novo Albion. But advanced scientific techniques in the late 1970s revealed that plate to have been a hoax 
That story is awesome. We'll get to that in a future episode. Today, cogent alternative arguments have been made for Vancouver Island, Washington State, and the coast of Oregon, in addition to California. The argument around this is arcane, and it involves such unscrupulous and scurrilous behavior by otherwise respected historians, who might be hoaxers, that it is worth an episode of its own. Since it can be told a bit out of order without otherwise disrupting the history of the Americans, I'll probably do it as a sidebar at some point after we've moved beyond 1580 in the timeline. In any case, by late July or early August 1579, Drake would have known from the captured Spanish navigational materials that his window for favorable winds across the Pacific was closing. His choice was simple. Continue to search for the Strait of Onion in the fading northern summer and hope for a fast return across a northwest passage not known to exist, or follow a known, if long and difficult, route to the west across the Pacific and Indian Oceans, around Africa, and then north along the coast, a voyage of some 20,000 miles. There was an additional complication. Drake had more than 80 men and one woman, and two small ships in a pinnace. We know from internal Spanish calculations that they believed Drake would not be able to take the western route because he could not carry enough food and water in the Golden Hind to load it up as it was with literally tons of silver and the other ship to support that many people for the time it would take to cross the vast expanse of the Pacific. With the overland route through Panama now blocked, the Spanish concluded he would try to return through the strait, and they would set about sailing the west coast of South America looking for him. Drake had done the same agonizing calculations, but decided differently. With a resolute but no doubt heavy heart, he selected 20 men to stay behind with Teo's bark and the remaining pinnace. They would have in all likely have been charged with exploring northward and attempting a northwest passage, and if they failed to find it, they would have returned to the fair and good bay and await rescue. Drake would have been able to say with some confidence that if he made it back with that much treasure, and I'm sure everyone involved, including the 20, knew that that was problematic at best, Elizabeth could be prevailed upon to support a rescue mission for the 20 men left behind. Drake would, in fact, plan a rescue mission and a broader project in Nova Albion, but events would overrule its keen desire to sail again in the Pacific. We do not know what befell the 20. The only thing we do know is that one of them, a Spanish-speaking pilot named Herrera, would end up walking to Mexico, where he surfaced in 1583, four years after the Golden Hind had sailed away from the Pacific Northwest. Marrera's account would be recorded by a friar. Since you know I love these crazy stories of individual survival in vast early America, I'll get to Marrera and what we can reasonably speculate about the 20 when I circle back to the Fair and Good Bay controversy in a future episode. The Golden Hind sailed into the Pacific Deep, following the Spanish instructions captured from Teo's bark. Now let's go to John Sugden's description. The English were 68 days out of sight of land, 
long, monotonous days beneath the sun, with little more than the groan of the timbers, the creak of the rigging, and the sounds of the ocean for company. But on September 30th, they fell into an island about eight or nine degrees north, probably one of the Carolinian archipelago, and possibly Palau, in which case Drake would have been its European discoverer. Multitudes of Micronesians in dugout canoes swarmed out to receive them, and at first it looked as if friendly trading would be the order of the day. However, the natives began helping themselves freely to the sailors' possessions and squabbling among themselves over whatever they acquired. The English tried to defuse the situation by refusing to trade further, but it got uglier, and the angry islanders began to bombard the hind with darts and stones they ferried out in their canoes. Drake directed a gun to be fired as a warning and frightened one group of natives away. But others were soon worrying the ship, and he reluctantly administered a severer lesson. His artillery shot tore through the fragile canoes, mangling craft and bodies, and scattering the survivors in terror. Drake was not proud of his action, and the narrative he later had prepared carried only a veiled reference to the slaughter of the natives. But John Drake would tell the Spaniards that 20 of the islanders were killed. It was a bitter incident, and the English called their landfall the Island of Thieves. The Golan Hind next reached Mindanao and the Philippines, and they were able to get some fresh water, but not much food. Finally, they passed southward toward the Malaccas, the famous Spice Islands, and the global source of cloves, which were immensely valuable in the 1500s. Hard as this may be to believe to anyone who had clove lifesavers back in the day. Now back to Sugden for some geopolitics. Only 50 years before, Spain had surrendered her claims to the Moluccas, which her sailors had reached by sailing west, to the crown of Portugal. And now the Portuguese were entrenched in the islands, filtering eastwards from the Indian Ocean. Drake could count upon their resentment at the appearance of an English ship, and he had little knowledge of how the native peoples would welcome him. Not only that, but his Spanish maps were now useless, and the other charts at his disposal did little justice to the elaborate maze of islands that spotted the seas in which the hind now sailed. Drake was excited, proud that his ship was cutting the steamy seas of the Indian archipelago that had inspired so much interest at home, hopeful that he might yet meet Winter or Thomas. You and I know that Thomas was dead and Winter had gone back to England, whom he had bade meet them there if they missed Peru. And fearful that after so much travail, his expedition could still come to grief. Picking up two native fishermen who agreed to help him, he anxiously threaded his way through the Siao Passage into the Malacca Sea. Now would be a great time to pop open a map app and see where Drake was, you know, if you're not making baked Alaska or water skiing while you listen to this. As it happened, Drake's famous luck did not fail him. The sultan of the islands, Babu, had been at war with the Portuguese who had killed his father. He had pushed them out of several of the islands and was hoping to push them out of their last stronghold, the island of Tidor, just a couple of miles across a narrow strait from his own wealthy island of Ternate. 
Babu quickly grasped that the English could help him against the Portuguese, both militarily and as an alternative European market for his robust crop of cloves. When his scout saw the hind, Babu sent an emissary to invite Drake to his headquarters on Ternate, in an old Portuguese castle. Drake sent a velvet cloak back as a gift to the sultan, and made his way there looking to resupply food, which he desperately needed, and fresh water. The sultan dispatched a fleet with three great galleys, each with 80 oarsmen, which towed the hind to the best anchorage. Drake broke out a small orchestra, and the party was on. They exchanged gifts. Drake gave the sultan a gold ring set with a precious stone, a coat of mail, and a fine helmet. And the sultan gave Drake a trade deal. Six tons of cloves, sugarcane, hens, rice, and fruit, which Drake would have wanted because scurvy was setting in again. At some point in October and November 1579, Drake left Ternate sailing southwest, looking for another harbor to careen the hind. At roughly this time, Drake's trusted and devoted servant Diego probably died. I had previously reported that Diego had made it all the way, becoming the first black circumnavigator. Miranda Kaufman acknowledges that some historians so believe. I had read one of them. But she walks through the evidence he died in her book Black Tudors. While disappointed, she seems to have the better argument. On December 12, 1579, the Hind anchored off a suitable small uninhabited island just off the east coast of Sulawesi, which is now part of Indonesia. The island had lots of food on foot, land, and in the sea, but accounts differ on whether it had its own supply of fresh water or whether that could only be obtained on an adjacent island. Regardless, there he repaired his ship. Here's another controversial moment. Three of the blacks on board, two men and the now very pregnant Maria, stayed behind. We do not know whether Drake abandoned them against their will or whether they preferred to stay behind on this paradisical island, rather than continuing the very dangerous journey back to England, a land they had never known. Not surprisingly, Drake comes in for a lot of criticism for this decision. But there is in fact no evidence that his motives were cruel if in fact he made the decision against their will. He may have been worried for the fate of Maria and the baby on the voyage home. And in any case, he named the island after one of them, I have in mind a future episode or blog post on Drake's legacy, maybe wrapped up with the whole California controversy. And if I get to that, I'll take you through the ins and outs and what have yous of this moment. Now back to Sugden. Ahead, the greatest peril of the entire voyage lay quietly waiting for him. It was submerged beneath the warm green seas that washed the east coast of Sulawesi. Its ragged crest only seven feet below the surface at low water, a long, steep-sided, sinuous reef. Nothing was more dreaded by sailors, nothing more terrifying than the destruction of those few planks of wood that protected them from the seabed. Drake had little knowledge of an area for which no reliable maps existed in any language and was ignorant of how far to the southeast Sulawesi extended. 
Also, the prevailing northeast wind drove the Golden Hinds south instead of west, and the English found themselves in the maze of islands, shoals, and finger-like peninsulas of the east coast of Sulawesi, confronting hazards more intricate than any yet encountered. With extraordinary care and circumspection, Drake beat back and forth. At one point, with a wind in their favor, the English believed that the only open water lay ahead, and the ship was put under full sail. But as the men began their first night watch, about eight o'clock on the evening of January 9th, 1580, the hind drove with a terrific shock upon the reef. Her fragile, life-saving timbers buckled upon the rock, and the sea surged into her hull. The crew knelt in prayer, calling for their deliverance, a response typical of Drake, and then set to work on the pumps, trying to reduce the water in the hold so that the damage could be inspected more closely. Now came the first thread of hope. The timbers of the ship were found on the hull to have withstood the collision and to be capable of repair if the hind could be worked from the reef without further damage. That was much easier said than done. They lowered an anchor opposite the reef with the hope of pulling the ship off, but the drop was so sudden that the anchor couldn't get purchase. They lightened their load, dumping three tons of valuable cloves, ammunition, two pieces of artillery. Still no movement, all while sailors worked the pumps arduously and continuously for hours on end. Then on the afternoon of January 10th, the wind suddenly shifted and pushed enough water in the right direction that the Golden Hind suddenly broke free. We do not know much of Drake's movements from here, but he found an island to effect repairs and get more water and hunted food, and then worked his way south between the islands east of Java. The Hind made its way along the southern coast of Java, establishing for the first time for Europeans that it was not connected to Terra Australis and settled into the harbor at today's Jalatchep. There, the crew refitted their ship and accumulated food and water for the long slog across the Indian Ocean. On March 26, 1580, ten weeks after the near shipwreck, the Golden Hind set sail across the vast Indian Ocean, coming within sight of the coast of Africa on May 21st. She sailed around the Cape of Good Hope in June, living off rainwater collected in casks set out on the deck, and finally found a good place to go ashore in Sierra Leone, far up Africa's west coast. This had been an extraordinary run of 9,700 miles, and one of the greatest feats of seamanship in history to that point, in a career that had featured many of them. In Sierra Leone, Drake's crew probably became the first English to lay eyes on elephants and restocked on food and water. Drake brought on a supply of lemons to ward off scurvy, still almost 200 years before Scottish physician James Lind would prove that citrus would prevent the disease, and more than 300 years before Americans would use the term limey to describe English people everywhere. On September 26, 1580, the Golden Hind appeared in the English Channel, moving cautiously toward Plymouth. Drake was back, a thousand and eighteen days after he departed. He learned from those fishermen we met two episodes back that Elizabeth was still on the throne, 
so he sailed into port. In Drake's absence, much had changed between England and Spain. Tensions were rising between the two countries on many fronts, including in the Netherlands, where Spain was tightening its grip, and in Ireland, where the Pope had dispatched troops, some of them Spanish, to disrupt English control. Careful listeners will recall that Philip II had learned more than a year before that El Draque had stolen vast amounts of his treasure, and Spain had issued a preemptive demand that England return Drake's booty should he make it back. Drake's return threw gasoline on those smoldering embers, though not enough to start a war. Yet, neither country was prepared, and both Philip and Elizabeth were very practical people. Still, Drake and his men stayed on their ship for a time, which must have been agony for them after so long at sea. The flu pandemic of 1580 was ripping through Plymouth, and he needed to line up allies. He dispatched a messenger to London and wrote letters to Walsingham, Leicester, and other of his investors to line up political support. The Privy Council met on short notice and exploded into acrimony between the doves, who wanted to return the treasure, and the hawks, who absolutely did not, partly because they were going to get some of it. Elizabeth broke the stalemate and sent a message to Drake, inviting him under a guarantee of safe conduct to an audience and asking that he bring specimens of his voyage. Drake loaded up some horses with a sample of his hoard and went to London for his interview with Her Majesty. Drake and the Queen met in private for six hours. We do not know what passed between them. Any history buff would wish to have been a fly on that wall. We can imagine that Drake, who was not a little charismatic, impressed her with stories of Drake's passage, the naming of the Elizabeth Islands, the vast treasure, the claiming of Nova Albion, the search for the Strait of Anian, and the trade deal with Babu. We do know this. Elizabeth authorized Drake to take 10,000 pounds for his own efforts and 14,000 more for his men, and then register the rest of the treasure for storage in the Tower of London. In fact, Drake probably took much more than her formal order allowed. The Spanish believed he had also given Elizabeth 100,000 pounds before the registration, because the final amount declared did not come close to footing with their own reckoning of the losses. Indeed, the Spanish accounting was probably an underestimate, because a lot of the silver taken from the poop fire and other prizes had itself not been registered. Drake had been stealing from thieves. Philip's well-connected ambassador Mendoza protested vigorously and demanded an audience with Elizabeth to lodge a diplomatic complaint. Now back to Sugden for that beautiful moment. The reply Elizabeth sent the furious Mendoza was insultingly deceitful. He had been complaining she had heard about Drake's voyage, but why she did not know, for she had made a diligent investigation and discovered that he had done Spain no damage. However, if the reverse was true, justice would be done. In the meantime, she would not receive Mendoza until she had gotten to the bottom of the Irish business. Mendoza's answer was only slightly less disingenuous. 
For among the documents he forwarded to refute Elizabeth's ridiculous statements were allegations that Drake had committed atrocities and cut off the hands of Spanish prisoners. Such monstrous falsehoods did Spain no service. In fact, they enabled the English to avoid the issue at stake. Drake had visited London again at the end of October, but back in Plymouth, he had Edmund Tremaine, the member of Parliament for Drake's hometown and a devoted Protestant, interrogate the crew of the Golden Hind, and 49 of them happily attested to the humanity of a commander they loved. The best refutation of Spain's charge, however, was not even available to Drake, the depositions of the Spanish prisoners themselves. Here's a lesson we might all learn from this. Tip generously. However loudly the Spanish raged, Drake was now a hero to all of England, and especially to Her Majesty. Elizabeth knew a national asset when she saw one, and personally took a great liking to Drake. He was regularly in her company, taking long walks with her in her gardens and sharing everything he knew in numerous private audiences. Drake had catapulted from his low-born beginnings to the highest reaches of English society and was probably one of its richest men. While this was annoying to the jealous toffs and poseurs around the Queen, both she and the folk of England, who instinctively understood his common touch and no doubt heard that his ordinary sailors adored him, understood him as the real deal. Now we'll turn back to Sudgen for the ceremony that closed the affair. Drake's proudest moment occurred on April 1st, 1581. He had brought the Golden Hind from Plymouth to Deptford so that the Queen might see her in dry dock. And that day, not only Her Majesty, but a good proportion of London turned out to honor the great sailor and see him transformed into our Golden Knight. So immense was the throng that after Elizabeth had crossed a plank onto the hind, the flimsy bridge collapsed under the weight of those that followed her, and something like 100 people fell into the mud below. None was hurt, and there was more entertainment. Once aboard, the queen lost one of her garters, which slipped down her leg and trailed behind, until the French ambassador, Monsieur de Marchemont, on his best behavior, darted out to retrieve it. The garter was purple and gold, and Elizabeth replaced it about her stocking in front of the ambassador and promised that when she had done with it, she would send it to him as a keepsake. Elizabeth knew what she was doing there. After a banquet that was reportedly the most extravagant scene, the queen had Drake stoop before her. She had a gilded sword, she mused, and might strike off his head. Instead, she handed it to Marchamont and bade him to perform the ceremony of knighthood, cunningly involving France in a brazen act of defiance of Spain. The stock seamen rose as Sir Francis Drake. Today is hard to appreciate the importance of this honor. The Tudors dispense knighthoods freely to the privileged classes, but few men of Drake's background could have aspired to a knighthood. Even Walsingham, that devoted servant of state, earned no higher accolade. That seems like a great place to stop for today, especially since this episode's a little longer than I prefer. 
You will be delighted or horrified to hear that we will return to Drake, and not only to examine the historical controversy around the location of Novo Albion's Fair and Good Bay and all the other little points of controversy. Before that, however, we will revisit the Spanish, or at least I think we will, who are mucking around again in the southwestern United States, 40 years after Coronado, and embark upon the first English settlement in today's United States at Roanoke Island. In the meantime, please check out the new website at thehistoryoftheamericans.com and consider writing a review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, you can follow the podcast on its Facebook page, which you can now find easily through the website. Please send me comments, questions, eruptions of outrage, and pats on the back to thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or through the comments tab on the website.